0: Forever.
1: Dog. Hi, everyone. It's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of The Writer's Panel. You may know me as the co-creator of The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh, I've written for television, for film, for comic books, for audio. Check out our uh, Audible series, Cut and Run, which stars Meg Ryan, Darcy Carden, Sam Richardson, and an all-star cast. It's really fun. We're very happy with how it turned out. You can check that out on Audible. I started doing this podcast almost 10 years ago because I wanted to have conversations about the business and process of writing with the people who were actually doing the writing of the television and films that I loved. I've learned so much over these almost 500 episodes. Um, and, There's no slowing down. As long as everyone keeps making great TV and great movies, I'm going to find out how they did it. It's endlessly fascinating to me. And if you're the kind of person who watches DVD extras, it's probably fascinating to you, too. I'm lucky that there are so many of you who do find these conversations interesting. And hopefully inspiring, as I always do it's 2021 i'm recording this in early march um and i think the last time i recorded an intro was like a year ago so it seemed like a good time to do that um hey how are you all doing what a year was it great for you probably right i mean how could it be bad this has been uh, an interesting you know year year and a half um Thanks to all of you who have continued listening to the podcast, we have slowed production um, because who wants to record a podcast, right? I assume we all sort of had that feeling last year, like, is it worth it? I should just sort of lay low and hold close my loved ones. Um, So I hope you did that. And I hope, you know, you were overall healthy and safe and kept yourself sane. Um... We did have some good episodes last year. I was really happy to meet and talk to a lot of those creators and writers. Um, It was a lot of fun. Um, My year was, of course, strange. Um, A good thing that came out of it is that, God, probably in mid-March of 2020, um, my wife was like, hey, we should put on a show. You should do a thrilling adventure hour show. Uh, people are stuck at home. They want to watch something. They want to take their minds off the world for an hour. Um, let's see if there's a way for us to do that over, you know, Zoom or, or something similar. Um, and she's smart and she was right. And we did a thrilling show and it was a great success and people really wanted it. It took her about three weeks to talk me into it. Um, and over the course of that time, we realized there was not at the time any all in one, virtual venue, somewhere you could buy tickets and also watch the show. There was nothing that you could do where like you got a producer as part of the show. So um, again, my wife is very smart. And so she suggested we create one. Um, Between us, we kind of knew how to do this. Um, She's in the nonprofit world and she's pretty tech savvy. Um, So she could work with some charities and figure out where the money could go from these endeavors. Um, And I know how to produce a show. And so, and I had the network to sort of reach out and ask people if they wanted to do shows. So that's what we did. And between March of last year and March of this year, we did about 60 shows, uh, all kinds. We did, you know, one of our first big shows with the Mr. Show reunion. Uh, Bob and David got the whole gang back together and did a show. Um, We did a Wet Hot American Summer reunion uh, that was for the Biden campaign. So I'm saying, you know, we're probably responsible for getting him elected. Um, I got to do some fun, weird stuff that I really wanted to do, including a read of the Briscoe County junior, uh, script, um, with Carlton Cuse, uh, and Bruce Campbell and a lot of the returning cast, but also some, some actors who I really love. Um, I got to do a read of the, um, Heat Vision and Jack script with Jack Black uh, and Rob Schraub, and um, we couldn't get Owen Wilson, and so Taika Waititi joined us and did that, and like it was bonkers. Um, all this stuff. John Hamm was in it. Like we had a lot of fun um, doing a lot of shows. We wound up raising over a million dollars for various charities um, through all the shows. Um, so it feels like we did something worthwhile in addition to having something to keep busy and keep safe uh, and keep sane and work with creative people. Um, yeah, so that's, that's no small thing. Um, anyway, we're continuing to do it because we really like it. If you go over to house seats live house seats live, um, we've slowed it way down. We're only doing a few shows a month, but we have a bunch coming up. Um, so check it out. Uh, there's cool stuff coming. Um, including live versions of some of my favorite podcasts, including the best pick pod, which is an Academy Awards podcast, um, celebrity book club with Chelsea DeVantes, who is just a terrific person and very funny. Um, we have an amazing guest for that. We're doing some more thrilling adventure hour stuff. Um, check it out. Uh, I, w- I would love to keep doing these live shows, um, in this format and also you know, in person would be fun to do also. Um, House Live was sort of the thing that kept me going last year in many ways, um, in addition to cooking and baking a lot, um, because there was no work. Uh, I know that there were virtual rooms. I know they were out there. I know there was some staffing, um, but it was tough. It was tough out there. Um, I don't think I got paid for any writing work last year. And that's frustrating. Um, and when Ben Acker and I realized that that was going to be the case, um, we had a couple things die early on because of the pandemic. Um, and then, I i don't know, we've talked about this on the podcast too, like it was hard to get any traction. It was hard to get any momentum going because people's minds were not on work as well they shouldn't be. Um. Anyway, when we saw that this Is probably going to be the case. Um, We did the thing that we were able to do, which is to write. Um, And we were lucky that we got to do it. Um, But I do think, you know, as writers, it's the thing we always have, right? You can write. You can take out a pad of paper. You can take out, sit down at your computer. You can write something. So we wrote two new feature scripts. Um, that we're really happy with. They're both horror movies. Um, I'm making a concerted effort to write more horror. Um, Horror is what I've always loved and I feel like I wasn't allowed to do it for a long time and you can tell personal stories through that genre um, in a way that you sometimes can't through other genres. Um, So we wrote these two new horror features. We're really excited about them. We're hoping, you know, (laughs) someone will want to make them. Um, We wrote... Two new pilots also, um, because we wanted to, uh, you know, one of them was something that I had been thinking about all year and I know that other people were as well. Um, it captured a lot of sort of the both comfort and, and what if, uh, situation that we're in. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of churning over, but luckily what we had last year was time. (laughs) I guess that's the one thing we had in addition to a pandemic. Um, so we wrote this new pilot that um, I'm really excited about and I really care about. And that's very personal. And I hope that someone will want to take a look at it. Um So that's where we are. Uh, I've talked to a lot of writers and a lot lot of executives, um, and it seems like we're still in a kind of a desert, and it's going to be a weird time in Hollywood for a while, and stuff is getting made. Production, you know, is slowly starting up again. Rooms are starting up again, still virtually for the time being, which is good. Um, It's going to be a while till things are normal, um, and it's still hard out there. It's still really hard. But again, we can write. So do that. Um, I'm doing it, and I hope you will too. Put new stuff out into the world. Please enjoy the show.
2: They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the writers' panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now.
1: First, we are joined by our old friend, returning pal, Adam Rogers. Adam, of course, is an editor for Wired Magazine. Uh, We had him on previously to talk about his first book, Proof the Science of Booze. He has a new book coming out in the coming weeks called Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Hi, what does that mean, Adam?
2: Yeah, that's a it's funny when you you mentioned having been on to talk about proof like that was so long ago it took me so long I really so what 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 it what it means is what I tried to what I tried to figure out is the kind of triple relationship among the way the way that our our eyes and brains make and construct a, a color um, out of the world, when we look out, when we see things, and what that stuff really is, what the light that around us is made of, and what the the surfaces that it bounces off of, what what that chemistry is about um, that makes things have color. And what it turned into was to try to understand how we humans change all that, how how color becomes a, a technology in our hands, and that part of making things have color and wanting things with color and how we see color and talk about it and think about it becomes one of the defining characteristics of being human because the, the way other there are other living things, not just animals, but even microbes um, perceive what, what we are talking about when we talk about colors, but they perceive it in very different ways. So there's this one thing, there's human colors that we make, and then we learn more about and then we use that knowledge to make more of them because it makes our world part of the way that we perceive it. Um, and so that I, got, I got sort of compelled by all those ideas in the book is an attempt to try to look at that from, from the ochre cave walls through the, the high definition lasers that they use to make Pixar movies.
1: It's, it's so all-encompassing um, in many ways that it feels like, you know, when you talk about how long ago that first book was, like, it makes sense. Like, this is a huge topic to wrangle. Um, and, and it feels like, you know, you had your initial questions about color and how we perceive it, but that opens up so many doors. Like, how do you start to just wrestle this thing to the ground?
2: <laughs> Right. Well, this was the problem. You're absolutely right to identify what the issue became, because what I, what, what I started with was a kind of a, uh, an admittedly weird obsession with a particular pigment, a particular molecule called titanium dioxide, which is a titanium atom, two oxygen atoms. And titanium dioxide is the basis for um, a, a very bright, very opaque white pigment. And it's also mixed into all kinds of other stuff too, because it, because it has this high refractive index, because of some physical properties of the molecule and because of the way that you can treat the particles that become the pigment. Um, it's mixed in all kinds of other paints to give them opacity, to give them good coverage that you want to paint to cover the whatever's underneath it. And it's in paper and in plastic and in the coatings of pills and in candy and in used to be in the white powder on uh, sugar donuts that you would buy in the supermarket in addition to the sugar. It's sort of ubiquitous in the human built environment. And I got really into that idea. Like there was this one thing that gave our world, its color. But once, once you say that to someone like an agent or a book editor, for example, they say, well, sure, but what? <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean? What kind of colors? Aren't you just talking? Is paint a color? What about what about Newton? What about that spectrum stuff? What about you know what what about uh, the the photons streaming from the sun? You know, however many sextillion photons hit a a square meter of sunlit Earth every second. You know, what about those? What's the difference between a photon and a wave? Like, and and pretty soon you realize there are all of these other questions that you have to deal with. And so what I ended up with. Was, a, was something that was roughly chronological in terms of the way human beings sort of understood and 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 lived with color, going kind of from the the oldest known uh, workshop in a in a cave in South Africa for making ochre into a paint that you could make into paint walls. The Neolithic humans made. Um, and working through kind of the, the Silk Road and Tang era China trade with different colored porcelain with the Abbasid Empire, and then going through kind of how the up through the Industrial Revolution when the number of available pigments doubled and then doubled again, and human beings could make things with more colors. But but there's also the, the so there's a there's a chronology, and that's and and that became a maybe slightly dunderheaded just organizational principle. Um, but also because then you're choosing which place you're at and what story you want to tell in those those time
1: periods. But But you need something to hold on to, So it it makes sense.
2: That's right. Um, because I also wanted to tell the story. I knew I wanted to tell that titanium dioxide story. So that meant, well, I had to, okay, well, good. If I know I'm going to center around that, then I also have to tell the story of lead white because that was the white pigment before that that was used for thousands of years back to ancient Rome. And that's got its own chemistry and its own problems because it's lead and it's super toxic. So you can tell that story. Hmm. Um, and you know, and then I knew I also wanted to talk about the difference between, between reflective and emissive colors, between additive and subtractive light and pigment. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, well, that means there's some physics I have to talk about. And that I, what I eventually focused on was like, I want to talk about rainbows. How do, what, do, what are rainbows? And it turned out that trying to understand what a rainbow was, was this central occupation of, uh, of the early Arab scientists that led to Isaac Newton figuring out What the spectrum was Um, pretty in a kind of not quite direct way, but a sort of British science documentary direct way. Um, (laughs) And and the and and the thing I came to love about that was, you know, then you start to just figure out what little details you want to focus on, what stories you're actually going to tell within that grand structure. Right. So, you know, the reason Isaac Newton was in an office in his mom's house trying to look from playing with prisms was that he was on the run in 1665 from the plague. He'd left college because he was, he was in lockdown. They were in quarantine um, because so many people were sick. The colleges sent everybody to do work from home. He went to his mom's house, went upstairs, shut himself into a study. And <laughs> one of the things that he did was poke a hole in the shutters and use these new optical technologies called prisms to break sunlight into what he named the spectrum. And so there were, there were these resonances um, for me with what, what was happening while, you know, literally while I was typing. And so those become, those, those become kind of structural points, um, Mm -hmm. to make as well. I hope.
1: Is there, I mean, having, having gone through this once already and this is clearly a a different though, sort of, you know, next to endeavor, um, having gone through this sort of research and the sort of sifting through, um, stories to tell with proof did you learn from that process anything that you could apply to um, uh, to full spectrum
2: for sure i did absolutely but i will say i remember very clearly having the equivalent the, the equivalent to this conversation with you at the time and saying that i felt like now i understood what the weight felt like to write a book that i said like now now i learned it that i had to just estimate what the weight was before and now having finished that book i knew what the weight felt like I am an idiot. I was wrong. <laughs> I totally had no idea. This one was harder than the first one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I think partially it was harder because I wanted to do it better. I wanted, mm-hmm. uh, there were things that I, it wasn't that I thought that proof was anything less than obviously brilliant and perfect, of course, but, uh, but that I thought like, well, no, you know, like there's, there were, I wanted to tighten the research. I wanted it to be more rigorous. I wanted the science to be better. I wanted that. I wanted the writing to be, even crisper and more fun. I, 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 wanted all those things. And so I really, uh, held myself to what ended up being like tougher standard. And also I think this material, I loved it every bit as much as I loved proof, which is good. Cause I don't know how else you'd keep going with a big project. And the same thing is true with any writing project, right? Like if you don't fall in love with it, I don't know how you stay on it. You just, you're like, no, I'm going to go watch TV. But, um, but I, uh, I found the material harder. It was just harder. To work with to to understand and to could trap my head around so what i what i I learned some research and organizational techniques that was really important um, especially as the structurally i understood proof better from the beginning but i understood this Mm -hmm. one the structure for full spectrum changed and evolved as i was writing and working on it and doing multiple drafts and edits so the structure of proof stayed pretty much the same as i had pitched really the structure the structure for full spectrum didn't have a complete structure when i pitched it And it evolved as we went on, so I had to figure that out. That was harder, Um, and uh, and the the there was sort of less to when I got into trouble in proof in writerly way. I could always in the book sort of go to a bar or go to a distillery. Mm -hmm. You could I could like cut away to like that's just like when I was in Scotland at this distillery this one time, and there were there there were no obvious cutaways like that in. Um, in full spectrum um, there were a few like, there's a few times I'm like so let's go to the museum right and look at some paintings right there's a couple of that are like or let's go to the place let's go to the titanium mine let's go to the place where they make the pigment let's, there's that kind of stuff and i figured that out but there were i, I felt like i didn't have as many of those i was about to re- use the word cheats and that's not right but but, but you know that like the, the what am i going to cut to now. Yeah. Because I can't just keep talking. What do I cut? To? <laughs> there was, so there, there are parts of it where I'm like, I, I think I just keep talking. I think we just got to hope that it's interesting. You know?
1: That's really interesting. I mean, how did you, I assume that you just have to accept, which is hard for a writer to do, that what you're talking about is interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I know it's interesting. I don't know if I picked the most interesting parts or said them in the most interesting way. I hope I did. That's what you hope for, but you, but, but yeah, I think that the booze book had proof, had the advantage of being able to say, if there's somebody who, if, if there, if, if you are a person who consumes alcohol, this will, this may well be of interest. And there's not really an equivalent of that to say, like if you are a person who perceives colors, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this may be, so there, there are parts of it that I think the parts where I think I'm onto something or when somebody says to me like, Oh, that's like, you know, if I see a red, is that the same as you see a red? I'm like, I got a whole chapter for you, buddy. <laughs> There's yeah. like, cause that is, that is linguistics and neuroscience, what you just asked. Right. Um, yeah. so I feel pretty good about that one.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I want to, let me, I want to come back to this idea of Um, trusting yourself and the story you're telling. Um, And this is something that's come up on the podcast a lot lately, uh, maybe because we're all feeling especially vulnerable. But, (laughs) you know, writing for a living, um, being a writer is this strange balance of ego and humility that you have to have. Um, And and I feel like, you know, I I guess the, the bigger question is like, The question I get asked a lot on Twitter is like, how do I find the confidence to know that the sentence, the page, the scene I'm writing is the right one? Yeah. Um, So rather than answer, I'm going to ask you.
2: (laughs) You coward. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have Uh, that confidence. (laughs) uh, Here's a counter proposal. You never know if it's the right one. You never have the confidence. You are yeah. never sure that you've chosen correctly, but you have to do it anyway. And so that's a certain kind of confidence. I sure. th- I've i been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, in the context of the notion of imposter syndrome,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, that feeling that like, oh, wow, everybody else is good at this, but I'm only faking it. And then you're supposed to understand like, no, everybody has imposter syndrome. Like everybody thinks they're faking it, but actually I'm not sure that that's the right, I don't feel like I'm faking it. I know that there are a lot of people who I'm nowhere near as good at at this job. And then, so by definition, there are people who I'm better at it. And I'm not sure who those are, but like, there must be, we're all on a distribution somehow, (laughs) but also, but like I took the money. (laughs) So I have to produce a thing. And uh, somebody else will decide if it was worth the money, and I'm trying to convince them that it is. So there's a certain amount of like, I got a job to do, so I got to type something, um, and and you hope that you're better at it than just an everyday you know job or whatever. But I, but I'm never. That's never is not true. Something you know that sometimes you type a sentence or you type a pair. You're like, yeah, nailed it. That's the right yeah. one. I got that one right. But but in general, I think you 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 can't know. The confidence is not, I have written the right thing. The confidence is, I've written a thing, I got to do it anyway. And this is, and we're going to do it. We're going to do this together. Um, Especially because I think there's a difference. I'm writing for an audience, I want people to read it. Um, And not to some extent for commercial reasons, I suppose, it's my job. But also I want people to like it and I want people to learn from it. And I want people to be excited by it. I want them to feel my enthusiasm. I want them to be enthusiastic. I want them to know a thing. I want them, I, I, I probably said this to you years ago about proof too. I want them to be reading it and I want them to elbow their partner in bed when they're reading it. And i say, did you know this? Mm-hmm. This is cool. You know, to me, like doing that is a mitzvah. That's part of what we're, that's that's, that's that's a way to make the world in a small way a better place when you get one of those. So I don't I don't know if we do it right, but I know we, you got to do it or else you're not writing else. You're, like I said, you're watching TV. You're not not, (laughs) not doing the thing. I think that's
1: absolutely. I I think there's something to that. And there's some, you know, and, and Acker and I talk about this a lot too, where like, whether it comes from us or whether we're getting paid to do it, like someone ordered this cabinet and this cabinet has to have shelves and it has to have a, a door and it has to have a handle. And like, Those things have to get done and, you know, you can build a version of it that you are happy with and you can build a version that you're proud of and you can build a version that maybe doesn't quite work, but you can keep refining. Um, But ultimately you have to do the thing or else you're not a carpenter.
2: (laughs) I had this conversation with a very, a very kind and very renowned Science writer who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. A guy who's written half a dozen books, and, and it's just—he's great. And uh, and he was—I was telling him about my book, and he he said like, "Oh, did you talk about this?" I'm like, "Oh, uh, well, I'm—that's really interesting stuff, but no, it's not there." like, "Oh, well, did you do this thing?" I said, I, "Actually, that's not—that's <laughs> not—it's that's not, cool. That's really would be really good." He said, "Oh, I mean, you, you did this part, right?" I'm like, "Well, I, I didn't really—that's not really." in there either. And he, and he looked across the table at me and he raised his wine glass and he said, well, here's the next book. <laughs> and I, oh and no, but no, but here's the thing about that. <laughs> that, that feels like a diss, but it wasn't mm-hmm. what he, what he was actually doing. And I really, I don't think I'm just being deluded here was he was welcoming. It was like, you're going to write enough books that not all of them are going to be as good as all the others. It was like him welcoming me into this world of like, no, you're, you didn't just write a book. You're now an author. You're a person who writes books and like, some of them are going to be good. And some of them are not going to be as good as those other ones. Cause you're going to make a lot of this stuff. You're going to make these things because we're human beings and this is a human endeavor. And, and that's great. That's good. You know, and I, I actually, did, I really did feel it that way. It cracked me up when he said it. It didn't, yeah. it didn't, it didn't break me. It made me feel like, oh, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who writes science books. I'm a science author now. That it felt, it felt right, as you say. Like, yeah. you know, some of the cabinets, and you're going to get better at it. Like eventually, you're going to make really good cabinets. Yeah. Um, and and with re- with regularity, they will be good cabinets. Um, and then along the way, some of the cabinets you'll look back like, oh, I wish that cabinet was better. And that's okay too. It's still a good yeah. cabinet, you know?
1: It still works. Yeah. Um, and I think, you, you know, you, you sort of touched on this when you talked about like learning from proof and what you could apply to full spectrum, like this is what we do, right? We iterate and the content is different, but, and the process may change, but we're still creating a thing that looks like the previous thing in many ways. And it's like, I, I don't know. Like I look at Stephen King who very frequently writes the same book over and, over, mm-hmm. and they're all readable, like, and some are great and some are okay, but like consciously or not, we're, we're trying to do the perfect version of this. We're never going to do it. So every version is perfect in its way.
2: And I think there's a, even if you're, what I worry about is that the way that I just described, it makes it sound like I'm, I'm pretty, I've trying to come to some commodity process, with the, with the work. And that's, and I absolutely don't mean that. Right. But but like, there's always this gap between how it felt, how, how it was supposed to feel like when you read it in your head Mm -hmm. and what you actually got onto the page. Yeah. And there's the gaps always there, sometimes bigger or smaller. And sometimes what you got on the page is better than what you thought it was going to be. Like, oh, that's a good, that's a pleasant surprise. I didn't, I didn't expect that we were going to get to that place. But there but that's, that of course it is, because what you had in your head wasn't a real thing. Right. You know, that was, the, the, it wasn't even like a platonic ideal. It was like a made up version of how you were going to feel when you read something really good that you didn't know what the words
1: <laughs> were. Right. But there's I, a translation process always, yes. right? and And that's the hard part. That's the writing part.
2: Right. And what you learn how to do, what you get better at, I think, what I hope I have gotten better at is like knowing how to solve the problem. Like what you, mm-hmm. it's the if, I don't know if the cabinets get better, but my, like, I get, I have favorite tools now and I know mm-hmm. what the tools do and I know how to keep the tools better. And I know how to use those tools. And I have some stylistic things that I do with those tools that other people don't do. And I think yeah. they're important. And, you know, those are the, those are the things you get, um, you get better. at, And I, I, I mean, maybe if there's, if there's, if I have confidence in anything, it's that, that I, sort of will know how to address the problem, even if I don't solve it in the end, maybe.
1: It, it makes sense. I mean, and and again, like this comes back to you didn't have the ability to cut away in the way you did with proof. So you discover new tools. Right. Um and like that's an exciting part of the process. Um yes. I wanna I wanna ask um just before we wrap up, um what to you like if you were someone who read Full Spectrum, if you were not the person who wrote it, you were the person who read it, what's the thing that you would nudge your partner about and be like, did you know this? Like, what was a great discovery for you as you went along?
2: I think for me, the 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 big uh, sort of mind-shifting part of the book as a whole was understanding that the things that we, see that the world that we move through and interact with gets processed and reconstructed by our eyes and our brain and that the that the world around us there's that there is at least some distance between what it actually is and how we see it and how we make that and that that's affected by who we are and our culture and our background and our and the, the the shape of the meat in between our ears and the way that our eyes are built that all those things make us see things slightly differently. And then we have to find ways to communicate those differences and those similarities to each other. So that, that dorm room question that I was joking about earlier is this is the red that I see the same as the red that you see necessarily, they are different because there are individual differences in the way we perceive the world. And that's great. And we still find a way to both say that's red. Hmm. And I I find that very moving. I find that very moving.
1: Absolutely. Um, that to me is the the hookiest hook of this book um i think like yeah it's very moving and and it's worth exploring it's worth talking about um full spectrum how the science of color made us modern is out next week um as of you listening to this please go check it out you can get it from your local bookseller or from amazon.com um what are you reading these days what do you want to recommend? Are you reading anything great? Have you watched any great TV? Have you seen any good movies? What do you want to tell us about?
2: Yeah. So, okay. I'll put a, I'll do a TV show pitch first, the Netflix cartoon city of ghosts, uh, which is just a wonderful piece of animation. That is also journalism and also history and also joyful and for children and for adults. And there are only six episodes and they all made me cry. It was it's just wonderful 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 work really that's great
1: yeah it's really great i keep hearing i keep hearing it put exactly that way and you're like oh this this is for me i don't know if my heart can take it but i'm gonna watch it
2: yeah i really think they're I very rarely have the experience of of watching something and thinking this is something new i don't know what this is this is that's exciting um yeah. which is terrific um and what am i reading uh i always have a giant stack of things next to the bed um Jeff Manna's book, Jeff Manna and Nicola Twilley's book on quarantine is coming up. I just started that. Um, they were they've been working on it for years, even before there was a quarantine, and now oh, there's wow. a quarantine, and the, and the book coming out. And they're both they're both brilliant. Um, she she writes for the New Yorker, and he he wrote Building Blog for years, and and it kind of oh, writes about design, and uh, which oh, I'm no. really I'm really psyched for that, um, uh, and. Let's see. I think after that is probably Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future, which is Dan writes science fiction, and this is probably his most overtly political. Like, how are we going to get out of this mess that we're in with climate? Um, oh
1: wow, is, is it, it is, is that new?
2: Yeah, it, it's not. It's not so new. It's it. It has been out for no some time, time, but it's been sitting next to my bed. Chagrined to say, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Uh Um, these
1: are these are good recs. Um thank you so much, folks who check out full spectrum. Um Adam, come back anytime sooner. Sooner than than this one.
2: I'll try to type faster, Ben. I will, I
3: promise. (laughs)
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: This is how a podcast starts. Thank you all for being here. What I'm going to do first is ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphone so that the listener knows what your voice sounds like. Tell us who you are and maybe a couple places they may have seen your name on their television. And Allie, let's start with you.
3: I am Allie Rushfield. I most recently have done the show shrill that's on Hulu that is about to come out a new season in a few weeks. And, um, I guess I started out mostly in the Judd Apatow world of the show Undeclared many, many years ago. I had short-lived shows of my own with my writing partner of then. And I was on Parks and Rec for a little while as well. And Love, Judd's show Mm -hmm. Love, I was on too. I was trying to think of the shows that weren't immediately canceled. (laughs) we we
1: can talk about that um ryan
3: uh
4: yes hi my name is ryan o'connell i uh made a show called special season two coming out may 20th um i wrote for a show called awkward on mtv for two seasons that was my first job um i wrote for will and grace the the reboot. um and uh, yeah, this last summer I wrote for the new season of Babysirters Club, which was really fun. Just going, oh, to Stony, going to Stony Brook and just like, you know, the case of Claudia's lost <laughs> earring, you know, while the world was burning down all around us, it was a nice soothe. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's basically it. Great. Thanks. And
1: Gladys.
0: Um, hi, I'm Gladys Rodriguez. Um, I guess I've, my resume looks like a mishmash of like, Cheesecake Factory menu, (laughs) but um, I started off uh, on Sons of Anarchy, um, and then you know I kind of took a detour and worked on on a show called Star on Fox, and then I did uh, Dynasty on the CW, and then uh, I guess most notably I did a show called um, Vida for two seasons, Um, and then I have been working on a couple of Netflix shows so you can't talk about right yeah well one of them i can't talk about one has been announced it's called true story with kevin hart and wesley snipes which was a whole lot of fun so
3: well thanks and the
0: other other one you can't talk about the other one hasn't been released hasn't been announced so can't talk about it but but it's a netflix show that's
1: hot everybody here
3: I have to know. I have to know now. <laughs> we'll we'll take our answer off air. <laughs> Jane cut. Jane cut. What is it? What is it? <laughs> what is that? The
1: comeback. Oh, it's a comeback, babe. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me start out by asking all of you, what. What does your week look like? Um, You know, we're in sort of a weird time for network television, but nobody works in network television anymore. So what uh, what does your week look like? I assume everyone is in sort of different places um, with shows about to come out or shows having just wrapped or maybe you're in the middle of a season. But like Ali, you have as of this recording, you have Shrill about to um, the new season's about to premiere. Um, When people hear this, they'll be able to watch it. Um, so what does your life look like with a show about to premiere? And Ryan, you're in a similar situation.
3: Um, it feels like the star of the show who created it, also A.D. Bryant, and the other EP who created the show, Lindy West, who wrote the book it was based on, do a ton of press and I do none. <laughs> we have you here today. I mean yes I do this I do virtually none in comparison because so very little people care in comparison to them
1: Well listen first of all we care I demanded that you appear on this podcast Thank as did you. the listeners for sure like they love shrill and really wanted to hear about um, how the show is made but so I assume like everything's done with the show about to premiere there's no more post production to do do you start to look forward to new seasons? Do you take on new projects? Like, what? what's happening with you?
3: Um, there's no new seasons. This is the last season. Mm-hmm. And um, while doing it, I'm also just developing different shows for Warner Brothers. And also I did this uh, stop-motion animation show mm-hmm. for HBO Max. And uh, it's filming right now. But I guess, which I didn't realize when it films, I have like nothing to do with it.
1: (laughs) And I assume it's because it's stop motion. Like there's no sort of rewrites on the fly.
3: Yeah. I was like, should I be on the set? And they were like, well, we film eight seconds a day. (laughs) No, I'm not going to be there. Um, But so, yeah, I don't even do. Now it's just like trying to figure out if there'll be a second season of that. Cause it, the timing is, it's a Christmas show. So it can mm-hmm. only come out one time of the year. So, so it's the timing is specific of when they have to say they want more.
1: <laughs> sure, that makes sense. Um, Ryan, what are you doing with yourself? You're about a month away from um, your second season premiere.
4: Yeah, well I'm I'm finishing my novel this week. So I'm turning in final edits for that, which feels Congrats. very, very, very glamorous. I, I allowed myself to go on a very dramatic trip away to San Francisco to write in a hotel room, um, which felt just like high-stakes glamour novel vibes. Um, and then Get I'm going uh I actually did because it's a pandemic and there's nothing to do. So obviously I'm gonna just like sit inside and like Actually, the room was full of chaotic wallpaper, which I enjoyed. And there was like a roaring fireplace, and it was yeah, it was an ultimate suit. And then I'm just gearing up to do press for season two. And in the grand tradition of TV writing, I'm waiting to hear back about the fate of my show at HBO Max. So fingers crossed, you know, they've had it for months.
1: <laughs> this is, and this is a this is a new show, uh, a new a new pilot at HBO Max.
4: Yeah, accessible. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So so hopefully, you know, that works out. But I found like when waiting to hear back about things, you need to really kind of like fall down a case hole through other work. Otherwise, it'll go insane.
1: Yeah. So you're working on the novel. Do you have to start thinking about the next thing because you don't know the fate of this other pilot?
4: Well, there's enough stuff like we're, we're doing the, uh, the film adaptation of the novel. So I need to start writing the screenplay for that. But also I'm waiting for my deal to close. There's a lot of like not glamorous waiting vibes happening. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like the nature of the business, and I'm sure everyone can relate, is like there's a cyclone of busyness and then you turn in all your work and then it's truly crickets. And then you just like... You know, wander around Los Angeles like a lost Lisbon sister and eat chopped salads and like hope <laughs> for the best. Do you know what I mean?
3: That's... Have you written a novel before?
4: No, it's my first novel. I wrote it in the pandemic because I was going psychotic. And um, yeah. Is it pandemic themed? Oh my god, honey, no, I would never do that to you. <laughs> oh my Good. god. Nice. No, 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 no. It's just like it's it's, I don't know what it is. I need to start figuring out how to describe
1: it. <laughs> You're going to have to talk about it.
4: <laughs> I know. So rude. Um, but it was really, it was really fun because I've been wanting to write a novel for a long time, but um, because I, I find the medium of TV, I really love it, but it feels like a math problem. A lot of times it's so economical and it's so like, plug this in here, plug this in here. And, like, a novel was all about, like, detours and, like, taking, like, long walks in the woods, like, creatively speaking. And, like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be so economical. You can get lost in a thought and kind of find your way back, like, breadcrumb your way back. And I just kind of liked it. It felt very indulgent and luxurious compared to TV writing, which is, like, lean and tight. And everything has to go somewhere. and You have to seed everything and then pay it off later. And it's just like, oh, my fucking God. So it was nice
3: to kind of switch it up for a little bit. You,
4: you cannot describe what it's about. Oh, oh my God. Well, okay. So actually it's about uh, a gay guy with cerebral palsy. Wait, what? Um, and he is a functional alcoholic working for television and he gets addicted to sex workers. So it's a lot about addiction, um, sexual and otherwise. And it's, but it's a comedy. <laughs> and uh, actually a lot of it takes place in a television, uh, a writer's room. So, you know, we'll
3: see where uh, cool. where the room's supposed to be.
4: Um, he writes for this really horrible network comedy called Sammy Says, which is about a woman who realizes that she's a robot. Wow. <laughs> so he's very he's very creatively fulfilled.
0: <laughs> <That> sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds so good.
4: I thank you. Thank fun. you. I mean, it's it's uh yeah, it's it was really really fun to write, and it was it felt very like conduit style, like, you know, which I think is kind of rare as a writer. So when you kind of can strike that, it's very exciting.
1: Well, that's the thing we sort of, that's what we strive for, right? When we get those moments of just sort of channeling something. Uh, And we can talk about that in a sec. I want to pick up um, with Gladys. What are are you working on right now? Are you in a room right now?
0: Yeah. um, So it's kind of been like a cyclone of like chaos in my house, like the last... I would say three months. So I am in a room, I'm finishing up a room, uh, the Netflix show, and it's probably going to be done next week. Um, I'm also, I sold a show to AMC last uh, spring, no last fall, sorry. And then um, working on that still, just cause development is super slow as you guys all know. <laughs> so I'm um, just finishing up some notes on, on that. Um, and then, so I work on that in the morning and then at night when my son goes to bed, cause I'm a, I'm a mom also, um, I work on, I'm, I'm pitching a show, another show next week. So I kind of have my, 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 room goes from like 10 to four usually, and then, um, pick up my son from school, play with him, put him to bed. And then my third job starts. <laughs> which oh, is,
1: yeah. Um, how are you finding that switching gears? I mean, that's like, you're, you're basically working in three different formats here.
0: Yeah. It's been really, it's been challenging. Um, just because, you know, you had at first I was like, how am I going to do this? But, you know, you get into, to kind of like a groove and you just kind of do it (laughs) and it's just like, okay, it's kind of just like go mode and you're, you become like a robot and you just have this kind of routine that you just do. And, you know, it's been okay, but it's, you know, it has moments where I'm just like, fuck. And then just to throw a wrench in there, I'm pregnant and I'm going to have another baby next month.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, congrats. Wow. Thank congrats. You.
0: I know. It's just crazy. You know, I just love <laughs> chaos. My
1: life is. Just, <laughs> sure.
0: I thrive on chaos. Um, oh and your son, he's two and a half. Oh, wow. uh, and, you know, it, it's weird because, like, the pandemic kind of did like a, a, a mind fuck for me. I was like, dude, I'm like, forty. I don't want my kid to, you know, like what happen? What if what if something happens to me, you know, or my husband, and he's going to be alone? I need like a sibling for him. It was just like a crazy mind fuck that happened to me. So I'm like, why not? You know, we're life's too fucking short. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm yeah, months. I'm, I'm I'm just crazy like that. But um, the other thing is um, just to add just more. It's like we we bought a house. We're nest grown out. It's just like ah. So my week has been a little bit, uh, <laughs> but you know everything is is fine. I'm I can handle it. We it's are. It's
4: good a, to admit I'm that a, you I'm like chaos. I do. I
0: I, do I like that.
4: It. That's good though because I think like yeah. I, I I like it too. And for like a long time I was just like oh my god this is so crazy. And it's like gee I wonder who made it this way. <laughs> I bought a I bought a house this year while shooting special and um, imagined show running and starring in a show while buying it's it deleted years off my life i feel like i'm not even it's like men in black memory eraser just to like protect myself from the trauma but i like feel like at a certain point you kind of have to admit like you're doing this to yourself right like (laughs) this is kind of
0: yeah it is a little like self-sabotage because every time and i i hate being on hiatus like i i cannot do i don't do well when i'm just like sitting i actually need to be working or doing something and I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it's like an immigrant child mentality, or I don't really know. It's like I gotta be hustling. I gotta be working, and you know, it's probably like something about that. Do you feel like do you feel like the need to work to work,
3: or do you feel like you're very ambitious, or is that the same thing? I think
0: it's a little, it's a little of both because it's like I always feel like the need to work because, um, like, if I stay still for too long, I'm like I go a little nuts. And, um, you know, the other thing is, yeah, I just feel like very ambitious. Like, I think because, like I said, I was a child of immigrants who like work their butts off and like I need to, you know, provide for my parents and stuff. So it, it is a little bit of that, too. Well,
1: I think but, there's uh, something in this business that um, I don't know if it always rewards the hustle, but it certainly promotes the hustle. Um, you know, it it makes you you have to work, right? Like
2: yeah.
1: the thing, the thing we are in control of in this business is our own work. Uh, everything else is sort of up to somebody else, but we can always write more. We can always pitch more. We can always create more documents they don't always go somewhere, but it's the thing we can always do. We can always meet more writers and talk to writers and learn more. Um, and I'm curious to hear from all of you, you know, as you're coming up, I don't think this is a new phenomenon, but how that how that weighed on you and how, you know, you started to juggle just the hustle with actually like doing the work and getting the jobs. Like, does it pay off? I mean,
4: I, I had a story that you need to tell behind Bulletproof glass, which is that I moved here in the first three weeks, had my first meeting and got stopped on a show, which was like, <laughs> truly, like truly, like, I know it's like unhinged, by the way, trust me. I was after that show wrapped, I was unemployed for a year and a half. So don't worry. Don't worry. She, she went through it. Um, but yeah, I did not know how anything worked. I'd never been on it. Like I'd never had a meeting before. I didn't know what anything was. And it was sort of just like, that's into. Where plan. did you
3: live from?
4: Um, New York, the New York to LA migration. And I wanted to write for TV and that was my plan. I just, um, I, it was just really, really crazy that my first meeting came right when I moved. And then I was in a writer's room like the next week.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that for a sec. How did you even get that first meeting?
4: Well, I wrote a pilot when I was living in New York, and I got representation from UTA through my book agent because I was also writing a, a book at the time. Um, so, yeah, but I'd always wanted to write for TV because I was a pause for laughs blogger at the time, and I knew that writing about my personal <laughs> life for $2 a day was going to um, not be sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd always wanted to write for television. I was always obsessed with TV. And, um, and so, yeah, so I remember I moved here in L.A. And I didn't even know what staffing season was. I didn't understand any of it. So I moved after staffing season. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this is when network TV was still sort of around. It was like 2013. Um, and then they were like, well, what show do you like? And I was like, I like this show Awkward on MTV. Because I, I genuinely did. I was like a big fan. And they're like, oh, it's staffing now, actually. Like, we'll, we'll submit you. And then I met the showrunners and that was that. But I had no idea. I mean, it's, it was so naive. I just had no idea how rare that was. Like, to me, it made perfect sense. I was like, that's great. Okay, moved here, got the job that I wanted. Here we go. And then when that job ended, they always say that your first job is the hardest to get. But to me, it was the second job. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: Really, it's very
1: challenging. Absolutely, um, Allie. I want to pick up for on your uh, origins. Tell me about the breaking in. I mean, it looks like just looking at your credits, there's an animated show early on, and then undeclared uh, shortly after that. Um, tell me about like how you got your foot in the door.
3: Um, well, <clears throat> Jenny, my writing partner then worked at Tribeca Films, and the guy who she no, she didn't work with him. He just worked in the office like an executive there was becoming a a William Morris agent at the same time as I was like working on a movie spec script. And then she started helping me with it. So it became our spec script. And he was like, if you finish it, then I'll be your agent. (laughs) And so then he was our agent, but did nothing. We did nothing for a year, but go to meetings and like, get free stuff when we were in meetings, but we like, nobody told us how to like parlay meetings into work or anything. Yeah. And then, and then um, her, her father is a screenwriter and connected us with UTA. And then we met them. And I think I thought that they just signed us, but they actually didn't. <laughs> we just happened to get this movie assignment like six weeks later. And oh so gosh. then they signed us and then we did movies for a year or so and then met met Judd Apatow and Undeclared and then got into TV.
1: Gotcha. Um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned, which is, you know, I, I had a similar experience where like nobody told us how to have a meeting uh, in the, those early years. And I think that's a great, opportunity to give some advice to new writers or writers who are emerging um, and talk about like, how do you turn that perfectly good general meeting into a job? Um, So Ali, I'll start with you, but I'll open it to all of you. Like, how did you, what did you learn um, through the process of doing hundreds of meetings over the first few years?
3: I mean, basically what not to do which is sit there and pretend like you're just like hanging out in someone's office and the thing to do is to ask them what they're working on what assignments they have did have they bought any books is there anything you can read is there you know if you have ideas tell them a few of them and then if there is connections made then follow up aggressively
1: hmm and and did you do the following up? Did you leave it to your agent to follow up? Like, how did you manage your agent in those? We ways, never too? did it
3: because we just sat sure. in these meetings and talked about our lives and parlayed them into nothing. Like, yeah. I remember one meeting we, like, stole Matthew Perry's phone number from a lady. <laughs> and that was like the biggest <laughs> that's a, thing. That's it. a good meeting. That's a, that's good, a good win. That is, but it's not a job. But right. nothing happened until, I mean things happened at UTA with movies and then they really happened because we met Judd.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so much of that is like getting in front of the right person and also being prepared with the material and, uh, and having it all click. So, so Gladys and Ryan, I want to ask you guys the same thing, you know, learning how to have a meeting, um, what tips can you give to, uh, new writers on this?
0: Um, I guess for me, it's just really be yourself and like have an interesting story and know who you are, you know, like don't bullshit your way through a meeting because people can smell bullshit a mile away and um, just be like conversational. Uh, And, you know, I think, uh, I think you just have to really know the company you're meeting with, you know, do a little research. Um, it helps to know who, who you're meeting with, just because, yeah. you know, early on I I would go to meetings. You know, they would send me on all sorts of meetings, and I think my, one of my biggest mistakes is just not being prepared. And as far as like knowing, you know, who you, who you're sitting down with, knowing what their company's about, but also like I was so desperate early on <laughs> that I was just like talking a mile a minute, and you just have to be chill and be yourself and like. Have a good story because that's really what they want. They want to see what you're like. And if they're, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're going to showrunners meetings, are they going to be able to sit with you in a room for, you know, 12 hours a day? So I think that's important is just, you know, take a, take a breather, um, just channel who you really, really are because the authenticity will come through. And that's really important. Yeah.
1: I think that's great advice. And and Ryan, I sort of want to ask you like the flip side of that. You got to hire a staff for yeah. special. Um, what were the best meetings you had? What was coming through in those meetings?
4: I think it's what Gladys said. It's like literally like for me, it's like, do I want to be in the, a room with this person for 10 hours a day? Like that's really what it comes down to because if someone's already like, if we're already like kind of not vibing on the first meeting, like I'm kind of like, mm, or like, I really like the writing sample, but like our personalities aren't driving. Like that's that's something that I'm like, no, like you because you're with these people so intensely and it's such forced intimacy that you have to be like living, laughing, and loving. Like I would take someone who truly, I would take someone whose writing sample I didn't love as much if I thought they were a joy to be around. Because like as long as there's something there, you can always teach, you know, so it's fine. But to me, it's um. It's all personality driven, but it was very nice being on the opposite end for once, you know, cause I, <laughs> you know, I've done the generals and I'm, I'm really bad at them. I'm really bad at making general specific because I feel like I'm seething with resentment by the time I get to Santa Monica <laughs> at 4pm and then yeah. I'm stuck with a straight white guy named Tim who lives in Redondo beach. And he wants <laughs> to like talk to me about, I don't know, like his toy car collection. And then I'm truly like steamboat really levels the furious and then I wanna astral project myself out of the room and go to Penguins for some yogurt on the way back. That's it. So I'm really bad <laughs> at that stuff. I mean, Have you ever gotten better at them? No, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I think I'm, I am just very much myself and I feel like this business is so full of psychos and people with strange personalities that like, I didn't, that's the thing I didn't understand is how weird everyone was. I didn't get that. Like moving from New York to LA, everyone here is truly kooky-looky and just so odd and like very social climbing and very networking and very like short circuity. So like, that's not my journey. That's never been my journey. So like, I feel like non-psychos attract non-psychos and then you go be non-psychos together. And then the psychos attach to other psychos and they actually become quite successful too. But like, I just feel like it's such a vibe. It's such a blind date. And like, I don't know, it's like, I'm not going to try to like force him <coughs> from Redondo beach to like understand me or understand my journey. Like, I'm going to cut my losses and go night, night. You know what I mean?
3: Does Penguin still exist? I
4: hope it does. I mean, this pandemic has been rough on everybody, but I hope mall frozen yogurt from the 90s survived.
3: I mean, in that um, Oprah's interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, when she talked about working at Humphrey Humphrey Yogurt, yogurt. Mm -hmm. which was like in high school, like the place. It was like that was the most revelatory thing of that entire.
0: Interview. I know. I wonder <laughs> if they've gotten you more know, business. The, in the, the Valley. What? Is it still open? Is it still open? I don't think it is. Oh, I was like, I hope they revive it, and then just sell like a Meghan Markle, like you know, Froyo special. Or
1: <laughs> Brandon.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Ali, tell me a little bit, please, about um putting together the room for um Shrimp what, what were you looking for? What were you reading? Um, how did, how did the personalities come together?
3: Um, well, it was different. Well, the first season was different than the second and third. Um, how the, first, the first season was i had done shows before and I was like, what I really need is people that I know are really good writers and that I can trust. Because everyone in the past experience I had was just like telling me what I wanted to hear all the time, so I needed like the people I could trust. Mm-hmm. So it was basically the three of us created the show. Me, Lindy, eighty, and I got two people, and each of them got one. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, so so it was like eighty hired. A woman from Saturday Night Live that wrote with her a lot. And then Lindy wanted to hire Samantha Irby, who's an essayist who hadn't written a lot of TV, but was like uh, the show, you know, knew a lot about like growing up fat and what the show was about. And then I hired uh, my friends, Dave King and uh, Craig DiGregorio who I just like worked on shows with over the years and uh, I mean like I've talked to about it with Lindy more recently like because there were definitely ups and downs with that year and like different camps of people and stuff so mm. that the second and third year basically became no friends allowed anymore <laughs> like friends interesting clickiness which leads to division and it's just not a good idea but lindy was like i mean we're writing a show about like a, a fat woman like why did you pick two of the senior level writers as being white men you know who had nothing to do with that subject yeah and i was like because I trusted them. They were who I worked with and I knew they can like write good scripts and write, you know, a lot of different point of views. But yeah. then when I thought about what she said, I was like, yeah, there has to be like a middle ground, you know, if that wasn't, that was really my answer that was honest. But I think it was like, in the, if I did it again, I might try harder to like merge more of the person in the show, even though I mm-hmm. thought they did a great job, but I think, sure, I, I don't know. It, it was something that I was just like, yeah, of course, I hired the people that I trusted the most, but then it was like, they were constantly like being, it was like questioned of like, what are they even doing here with this show? Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. Um, did you did you feel like you found a balance in the later in the next two seasons?
3: I mean, the next, two, yeah. I mean, I mean, it became the one person who remained was the Saturday Night Live writer, mm-hmm. and then we hired just other people, and it just you know the no friends rule. Yeah, it became much easier, and it much. I mean, to be honest, much lonelier, Hmm. like I didn't have the people I could trust anymore. So I had to like call them and be like this and this happened. What do I do? You know, but but it was like much lonelier, but it was much more functional as well.
1: That's really interesting. Um, Had you been in rooms either, either as a showrunner or as a, you know, a member of the staff where you saw a similar dynamic play out, like did having going through that allow you to look back with a different perspective?
3: Um, I don't think so. Cause I think it's like, w- only what you would deal with when you're trying to like be in charge and make the most peaceful yeah. environment. I don't think you would notice it otherwise. I mean, I've been on things where there's different camps of people, definitely, but it's like the fallout of it. I don't have to deal with it. So right. I don't care that, that much about it, you know? That
1: but, makes sense. Um, it was
3: like, yeah, it was like some kind of middle ground between doing it the way it's always been done and not mm-hmm. doing it the way it's always been done. It was yeah. like it's hard to learn
0: absolutely about yeah, working Gladys, with friends. Go
3: ahead.
0: yeah I hear that about working with friends it's hard because like when we were in Vida like we were all friends like a, a group of us were you know all really close friends and it's hard because it's just like you do sometimes cross that boundary and it's just like what the fuck dude like you know but there's other writers that are outside that circle and you just have to be careful because there it can seem like clicky um I probably will have that rule too (laughs) like don't work with friends don't hire friends just because it just becomes easier on the on on the soul too
4: I mean counterpoint because I like hired mostly all friends for special season two Mm -hmm. I think it kind of just depends I mean I think like I hired people that I'd worked with before but they were really right for the show and I think my show was so specific because it was my life so it was kind of weird not totally my life but it was weirdly personal and um I just kind of knew what to expect you know what I mean especially like my number two like a n- number two who you know for me was really important because like my number two she's a writer Lila Kohan Michio she's incredible and she's one of the most gifted writers I've ever worked with like her first drafts are like chef's kiss and like when you're when you're running a room you really, really need to know that, like, you're going to get a draft that's going to be sexy, fun, flirty, that you're not going to have to, like, you know, rewrite or whatever. Because, I mean, with Special, too, it was, like, very much my voice. So I'd always kind of do a voice pass. But I just, like, knew that she understood exactly what I wanted. So I think I understand what you're saying in terms of, like, the friends. It can be, like, this clickiness. But I also think Special was such a small room. There was only five of us, including the writer's assistant. So it was, like, Vivi Antemont. And I think the fact that we were pretty close, like, worked in our favor. But I think, but I think you just need to know, like, I think because I had worked with pretty much almost everybody before, I, I just knew what to expect. I, I, I think, Allie, your situation of, like, this kind of weird mixture of, like, everyone bringing their own friend, like, that does sound yeah, kind of like a recipe. It was, like, divided into threes. Yeah. but if I've been, I've been on
3: shows where everyone's just friends and it's, The most fun thing ever. But this was just like, there were different camps, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's like,
4: the writing is on the wall with that one. Yeah, for sure. sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What I like just to like just quickly, um, yeah. When I was on Vida, like after like a couple of the writers left, because we only had them contracted for, you know, a certain amount of weeks. And then the, the friends click stayed because we were like upper levels it was so much easier because it did feel like it was just like us and we had our own language. And Mm. now we just can't, I mean, like we have this group text and I, we talk like a hundred times a day. So (laughs) it's it's, it's fun. Yeah. It can
1: be, I mean, to Ryan's point, it can be the best situation right when you're all clicking like that. And I think part of that is it sounds like Ryan, what you had was like just a very clear vision for the show and a clear target. And Ali, I wonder if like having these three creators of the show helped to sort of split the vision um, well, in, in that first just, season.
3: I felt like I was, because it wasn't my story. So mm-hmm. I was like, felt like I was helping to make their story become a reality. Mm-hmm. And then so on top of that, it became over the seasons that I was like really just became management and barely Mm -hmm. had anything creative to do with it at all. You know, like I was like spending all my days talking about like an actor's deal Mm -hmm. and like, you know, getting notes on things and all of that. And I was at this point after that, I, I mean, then I did editing with 80 and you know, things got more creative again, but, like, I was, like, I can't, I can't be a manager, like, Mm -hmm. I'm actually, Mm -hmm. feel like I'm good at it, unfortunately, like, my (laughs) mother into, like, theater, and my father's a banker, so I have, like, both (laughs) sides of it, but I just, I'm, like, I'm not, I can't exist to, like, manage, manage things, like, I just, have no desire to do that. But when you get to sort of the top levels of having a show, unless you have someone to handle all that, that's what it is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we've heard that time and again on this, that you sort of start to lose the creative part. Um, And that's the reason you got into this business, right? Is there a show that you've worked on or that you created that, um, you feel like is the most you that has like your voice or your point of view in the strongest way?
3: Uh, This show that the stop motion one is like, I had, I had a room and sometimes we like, they wrote scenes and things, but I just, and had people write like parts of scripts, but I pretty much wrote every, everything.
1: Really? And, and what is, so this is, it's Santa Inc., right? Um, so what, what about this show makes it you? Is it, is it the voice? Is it the subject? Is it the point of view?
3: Yeah, it's all of it, except for the fact that I've never celebrated Christmas. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about a woman in the workplace where it's all men, but it's just an elf in Santa's village.
2: Makes a lot of
1: sense. Um, That's great. I can't wait to see that uh, distilled Allie Rushfield. Um, (laughs) Ryan, I want to talk about a similar thing, which is like Mm -hmm. translating you and your experience into special. Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you start to separate it from yourself or does it not matter?
4: Well, you think you just have to kind of see where the story goes. You become the story's bitch at a certain point. You know what I mean? Like you have to like let it go where it needs to go and you can't be precious about anything. And I really wasn't. I I felt kind of almost divorced from the TV show. Also, I kind of think I had created a character that was so wildly different from me. I mean, the character in Special like lived with his mom until the age of 28, not to brag, but I like totally went to college and lived on my own and like lost my virginity in a timely fashion and all these things. So he's definitely more Arrested Development than I am or ever was. So to me, I mean, I would say emotionally, the show is very autobiographical, but um, the actual story, because it's all about translating it to TV. And I think because I have been writing in television before for, for a few years, I was very familiar with structure and storytelling and A story, B story, blah, blah, blah. Again, the, mat, the not fun math equation part of it, where you're like, okay, how do I translate this deeply personal thing into actual compelling television? Um, and when that happens, when you translate it, it's going to, you're going to lose some things, but that's good. You don't have to like, it doesn't have to be your fucking diary all the time. Do you know what
1: (laughs) I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think we don't give enough credit to metaphor.
4: Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. You just, you just have to go where the story goes. It will, it will guide you to where, I mean, maybe that sounds like witchy and like woo-woo, but it's true. True. It's true. Yeah. You Absolutely. can't, like, because like, I've tried to force, like, trust me, like, the, I think everyone has tried to be like, you know what, I just, I really want there to be, like, this party in this episode, and, like, I think, like, I just, there needs to be, like, a Hanukkah party, and you're like, like, that's what needs to happen, and then you, like, try to, like, retrofit a story that, like, and you're like, wait, this is psychotic, like, you know what I mean, like, you can't, I think everyone gets this, like, sort of idea stuck in their head of, like, I want to see this happen. And you're like, okay, but actually the story is saying, I don't want that to happen. And here's 10 million reasons why. And then you can spend a whole week breaking it and trying to fit it in, but it does not work. And then you blow it up and you have to start all over again.
2: Yeah, and that's when absolutely. You
4: realize, again, the story is king slash queen and you have to bow down and kind of go where it wants to go.
1: Well, I think there's also, especially among new writers, a sort of instinct for literal truth rather than emotional honesty. Um, And I think this is something that all of you have done well in in your shows and the shows you've worked on. It's like they have this emotional honesty that doesn't need to be the literal truth. Um, Gladys, I want to ask about the same question. Like, of all the shows you've worked on, is there one where... You know, you felt, even though it wasn't your show, you got to, um, it, it had your voice. You got to really show yourself through the work.
0: The only show, really, because it's really the only Latinx show that I've worked on is Vida. And, um, you know, that, I, I really was able to channel that, like, who I was through these characters. Because never before have I seen characters that, you know, were like this on television. So it really was, you know, I put a little bit of every, you know, a little bit of my life in every character that I, that I helped write, which was awesome. You know, it was just like, there was this character who's kind of like this tough activist, kind of like neighborhood girl. And that was really fun to write because I hadn't ever had that, you know, and it was like breaking story in that room just felt like you were gossiping with your cousins. <laughs> you know, It was a lot of fun. And, you know, I've been in like mostly all male rooms. Um, and so this was an all female with the exception of one guy uh, Latinx show. And it was just really awesome. And so I think that was the only show that, and hopefully, you know, we can do it again. <laughs> That's my whole goal is like, you know, have shows that you can feel comfortable to tell part of your, you know, story in. Cause I, I, you know, it's, it's hard, <laughs> but yeah, that was, I would say V that was the, the only show so far. that mm-hmm. I've had not feel yeah. comf- Did you not feel comfortable in other rooms in that way? No. I mean, I was always like the token, you know, person of color. Mm-hmm. And so they would, anytime they would have a, you know, even if it was like, An Asian story. They would look at me like, "What?" You know, and it was just like, "What?" I can't speak for the the entire like you know non-white population. Um, So, and you know, starting out, it was most. I mean, I started out in like 2006 or something, and women were writing on TV, but not you know you weren't going to see like a room full of women. And um, you know, on Sons, I was the only woman, and it was like a very masculine show. And I was a staff writer there, so I didn't get a lot to, you know, I didn't get a lot of input. Um, but yeah, I think as the years have progressed, we've gotten more inclusive. And so Vita was just like the only one that I've actually had to, you know, I was I was sharing my own experience and it actually made it on this on the page and screen. So that's good.
1: Yeah. I mean, on on um Ali on these, you know, the second and third season of Shrill and Ryan on special, like i'm curious about mining your writing staff for their experiences on what appear to be pretty personal stories
4: oh yeah we went mining oh for sure i mean i i try to create a, i tried to create a room that was reflective of the show so like i wanted to make sure that every experience that a character was going, like you know like you know for example like my mom Jessica Hecht is a big part of the show so obviously one of the writers I was important that they have children and they know what that experience is like and all that so just like little things like that but again because because my my writer's room was so close-knit there was like instant vulnerability with each other Mm -hmm. and we're all kind of wired the same way so it felt really cathartic and really fun and really safe because I think I think we've all been in rooms that haven't really felt that safe or we've been with people that don't quite get it or whatever. So I just think kind of being in a room full of like like like-minded individuals and not feeling like the minority for once uh, was really empowering and really cool. And it was also really cool to give that because, you know, as a showrunner, you really set the tone. You're like the team captain. You come in every day. Seriously, so much of it is like just being like an emotional cheerleader. Like we got this guy. like, yes, like we're going to do this. And like coming in with like, you also have to come in with ideas every day. Cause like no one's going to care about your shit as much as you do. And that's not a dig. That's just reality. We've all been writers on a room where you're kind of like check out, you go night, night. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just what it is. It is what it is. So you have to kind of go in and just again, like bolster everyone's spirits and make everyone feel heard and included. And like, even a way I did that was like, I, I hate gang writing but like I want everyone to feel a sense of ownership over every episode so on awkward mm-hmm. we did this thing where we would we'd we'd take sections of an outline and we go write it and I really liked it because I on awkward I felt like every episode there was a little bit of my voice in it because I I helped you know pitch jokes or I did a section of it and I think that really helps people feel interested and engaged they want to feel I feel like Usually, unless you're like truly working for a garbage show, people want to feel like their fingerprints are all over it. It makes them feel a sense of ownership that they like. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know how we got here.
1: I think I think that's great. That's great advice. Seriously, for for any showrunner, it's like that is a big part of the job. Um, yeah, I just want them to care.
4: I just want them to care because yeah. it's important, you know. And again, you're like the care leader,
1: you know. And and you, that you get the best work that way when everyone's invested for sure. Um, We'll wrap up, by, uh, as we always do, by asking what everyone is watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones? Um, Allie, let's start with you. Are you watching any television?
3: Is this like pandemic times that you're asking? (laughs) (laughs) Just lately. Anything you
1: I would ask, no matter what. (laughs) What do you like to recommend?
3: I mean, I... I generally don't watch any comedy because then I can like hear the work when I'm watching it. Yeah. But I have spent the last six months watching exclusively "90 Day Fiance." <laughs> and all the you, and you I might just, be surprised how often I just hear that ran out yesterday, last night. <laughs> ran out.
1: Oh no! I'm sorry for your loss. Um, Do you, what are you going to do next?
3: I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I guess I have stuff like on my DVR that's hanging around like real housewives. And I just, I have to watch like very light reality shows also 90 day fiance. 90% of the time, the Americans are the worst people in the world. (laughs) I think that's that's
1: true of the world. <laughs>
3: Never the people from the other countries that are the problem. It's always the Americans.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Gladys, what are you watching on television these days?
0: Um, I just started watching Veneno on Netflix, which is this like Spanish show about um, this trans woman and it's fucking awesome so far. Like I'm really into it. Um, and I'm watching a lot of Coco Melon because I have no other choice, <laughs> um, which is this, you know, toddler TV. Um, and what else am I watching? Oh, I just finished because I'm late to the game, but <laughs> I may destroy you, which was mind blowing. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like my. Is that if I if I
3: hate watching rape stuff, should I not watch that? I mean. I would give you a trigger warning.
1: <laughs> a strong trigger warning.
0: Yeah, and I
3: was, I've I've not been raped. I just don't want to watch it.
0: Yeah. yeah, you might want to stay away from this one, but it's so compelling, um, and Nicole yeah. is so captivating. So um, yeah, that's all i yeah. would say.
1: <laughs> it's it's a great show, but it's a it's a heavy it's a heavy watch for right. sure. Um, But there's also, uh, listen, we could could talk about it for a whole episode. Uh, Ryan, what are you watching these days?
4: Well, my Scarlet Letter is you for unscripted. Like Ali, I need to be lobotomized with trash garbage reality TV. The thing is that working in TV, it's like once you know how the sausage gets made, you become a vegan. And so it's like hard to really enjoy it because it feels like you're taking your work home with you. So I need, you know, I'm talking the Real Housewives, every franchise, not just the top tier. I'm talking yes. below deck, not just below deck, but yes. below deck med. Of course. I, of course. I've gone Yeah, of Sam course. I, absolutely. Well, I've gone. I've gone places emotionally, spiritually, and physically that I never thought I could go,
3: and I'm just here. That's where I am. Yeah. And Well, I was with sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. 90-day fiance, I was talking to one of the Shrill writers and saying I was watching that, and he's like, "Well, you got to. It's not going to watch itself." And I was like, "Actually, there's this thing called pillow talk where they watch the shows. The people on it watch it. So it is watching itself. Wow. <laughs> that is that is
4: really, really eerie. So yeah, I mean, the only scripted show I watched, I think this year was Search Party, because I think it's just genius and I love it so much. And I've been such a big fan, and I'm so glad that like everyone else is watching it now that it's no longer at TBS and it's at HBO Max. <laughs> yeah. So um so I'd like love that. But yeah, I don't fuck. And my boyfriend's in hell because he's a prestige television bitch. And he's, always <laughs> like, he's always like, babe, let's watch insert new hot show here that will change your life. Like he's, you know, watching The Leftovers right now. And I'm just like, "Night," I'm literally just like, okay, like gallery girls, season one, here we go again. You know what I mean? He needs to
3: watch Teen Mom too. Okay. Honey, you name it, I'll fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> Like I've, I've gone lower than you could ever imagine.
1: I would, I would listen to the two of you, uh, discuss. Yeah. I would listen to that support group podcast. You two watching these shows. Yeah, there
3: should
0: be one.
1: (laughs) Um, thank you all so much for chatting today. I really appreciate it. Um, shrill, uh, the, the last season is out right now special. Uh, the second season is out May 20th. Is that right? Folks, would check it out. Um, it's a great show, and Gladys has secrets that she can't tell us about. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much. I'm
3: going to find out. I'm gonna find thank out. You. Thank you, guys.
0: Forever.
4: Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.